The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Jason! Joni, we're back in the same room. I know, I can't believe it. It was a long time coming, but I'm glad that you had fun with your grandchildren. Oh, they're so wonderful. I missed them so much this morning, although I think my daughter-in-law misses me more than I miss her and them. Because, because of all the help you were giving Because them. of all the help I was giving. I mean, she's got two babies, two little babies. Yeah, two for her. And that's like, and you think, okay, well, you have one baby, and okay, it's a lot of work. And you think, okay, well, I have two. It's only double the work. No, it's like 10 times the work. Absolutely. <laughs> My sister had twins. There you know. Four years, about four years ago. And okay. so I kind of know what you were, de- what life you were is, dealing with. Life is probably just about leveling out for her now. Yeah, not even. Yeah. It, it's just a whole roller coaster of <laughs> interesting events. Wow. Well, so anyways, I wait, wait before you start, this is episode 13. Lucky number 13. Exactly. We've been doing this for 13 weeks. Do you know we are well over a thousand downloads? That's amazing. Yes. Well, I'm hoping that everybody listening to this is one, enjoying it. Yep. Two, hopefully finding some solutions. Yep. If they have a loved one who's addicted mm-hmm. and three, realizing that they're not alone. Exactly. I've said it a lot. I've said it a few times. Families feel very alone when they have a loved one go through addiction because when you're going through it and you have a firsthand experience of dealing with it, it's a very lonely feeling. Mm-hmm. Like my parents felt like they were the only parents in the world that were dealing with a child that was not only addicted, but just destroying his entire life, destroying their lives, disrupting everything. And it's like a whirlwind of confusion and chaos and it's hard not to feel like you're the only person in the world dealing with that. Right. So I want other families to realize that there's lots of other families that do deal with it. Exactly. And in the same way that we talk about how when you go to certain other rehabs and the, and the staff there really don't have a concept of what it's like to be addicted, mm-hmm. it's similar for families. If they go to like a minister or a priest or a rabbi or what have you, if they don't have, a, if they've never been through it, then they don't know what it's like to go through it. It's you hard. Know? So you do feel alone. It's hard for families, especially because they don't have reality of what their addicted loved ones going through. Right. Because to the family, they just want to shake them or slap them and say, why don't you just, just stop? stop? Yeah. Just stop what you're doing. Why are you doing all these crazy things and stealing and robbing and dealing drugs and losing jobs and not going to school and just messing your life up? Why are you doing this? And a lot of it comes from a lack of reality for the families. They don't understand it. They don't right. get what's going through the addict's head because an addict is just trying to survive. Yes. And the dr- they feel like they survive better with the drugs than without the drugs. And so they're doing everything they can to stay doing that. Right. And protecting that and keeping that because it helps them deal with and confront life. And so yeah. the families don't get that. And so that's where we come in. And yes, one of the beneficial things of Narcanon is that we've all been through it. We've walked the <laughs> right. walk. We've talked the talk. We've gotten better come out the other side and I want to help others. Right. And so what better person to counsel an addict than somebody that actually you know dealt with that exactly exactly so. and i think one of the key things about this podcast is telling the stories like we have there was your story mm-hmm. there was derek's story there was Sarah's story there was a story of the mom mm-hmm. and today we have today we have Aiden. now i'm going to give you a little bit of background okay uh i was part of his intervention okay oh actually it was more of an escort he was kind of already sort of willing uh, we got a call that we had someone out in the Fort Lauderdale area that needed to come and do the program. And so me and another staff member did a road trip, uh, went out there. It was about four, four months ago, I believe, and uh, brought him to Narconon. 
and he's had quite the journey, quite the journey. Well, and I thought it would be a great opportunity for him to come here, tell his story. So hopefully it inspires others to get help, inspires other families to help their loved one and to really put some reality on what a person goes through when they're addicted to drugs and of course how they handle it. So I'd like to bring him on so he can tell us his story, tell us how it all happened and how he got out of it. Awesome. Aiden, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. My husband was at graduation at Norcan on Sun Coast when you completed and he came home very impressed about your talk. <laughs> so he said, oh, you have to get Aiden on the show. So I have literally been bugging Jason for three weeks now maybe <laughs> to have you come and have you speak to us. Nice. So, so thank you. I really appreciate you telling your story. Cause like I say, I think nobody's story is exactly the same. That's and true. so your story may resonate with someone that Jason's didn't or Derek's didn't. So there you go. Perfect. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And I love to share my story. I don't mind. That's awesome. And you're working at Narconon now, right? Yes, I'm currently working at Narconon. Cool. What are you doing there, can you say? Uh, I am in training for the New Life Detoxification IC. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. We have talked about that many times, and it's a... We're going to get to your story, but I'm just going to say this. When I went to the very first Narconon I went to, I found it interesting because the graduates of each of the different steps would be announced, and the first one, of course, was withdraw, and the um, person doing graduation would say, would anybody like to speak? And nobody would speak. And right. then she would give the graduates of the new life detoxification step. And that was when I heard people say, okay, my life is totally different. I have my mind back. This is a totally different ball game. And so you're going to get to help people through that, which is amazing. Yeah. And that's the main reason why I wanted to work in that area. I think the biggest change happens in sauna. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout the whole program, someone changes, but I see the biggest change when someone starts and finishes sauna. And that makes sense to me. Right. Okay, so tell me, how did you get started on drugs? Well, first I'll give a little background about you know my family. Um, I was born from two immigrant parents. My father was from Istanbul, Turkey, and my mother was from Tehran, Iran. And growing up as a child... You know, emotions weren't really discussed. Uh, feelings were kind of hid. A lot of things weren't discussed growing up. And I grew up in a household where I wasn't really allowed outside the house until I got to college. So a lot of my issues were not really, I didn't really feel like I experienced life until I got to college. <laughs> so I was kind of sheltered. And even though I came from a wealthy family, a great family, uh, who gave me everything I needed, supported me any way they could, um, I didn't start noticing potential problems until later in life. Interesting. Not to say it was my parents' fault, but there were certain things that... So, yeah, it wasn't my parents' fault. Um, you know, my father was very supportive. Uh, I used to pole vault in high school. I was a national state champion in pole vaulting in 2003. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> he would come to all my games and support me. Uh, my mother was more on the opposite end of the spectrum. She wanted me to focus on academics. She always kind of said, hey, listen, you know, I know you like sports, but we need to 
focus on schooling. It was either doctor, lawyer, or engineer in my family. <laughs> and if you didn't become one of those three things, you were pretty much a failure. I got it. And it was kind of like an unspoken rule that me and my brother had to abide by. So, of course, academics were like on the top of my list. You know, I did very well in school. Um, I started smoking weed about 14, 15 years old. Uh, what happened was is... Um, Sorry, Jason just made a gesture for those of you because you can't see him. But we talk about this all the time because the whole story out there for legalizing marijuana is, oh, weed is not a gateway drug. Guess what, folks? Yes, it is. It definitely is. And um, like I said, I, I was about 14 or 15 years old. And I wasn't really allowed out of the house besides to go to the park and play basketball and come back home on my bike. So uh, I had one friend who introduced it to me at the basketball court one day. We were playing basketball, and, you know, that's the only free time we got away from our parents. Mm -hmm. And I was curious. I tried it. You know, I ended up liking it. I don't think I really experienced, you know, any kind of euphoric feeling until maybe the second or third time I tried it. But as soon as I found that, then I had been smoking weed for a, a good period of time after that. 14, you said? 14, 15 14. years old, around that age. Um, of course, this extended throughout the rest of my high school. Uh, even though I would I, sometimes I'd go and play sports while smoking weed. Mm-hmm. So I would be high, you know, as I was playing <laughs> athletic sports, which I don't recommend. Right. Um, one day I... Uh, I was pole vaulting and I landed on my neck. This is while I was intoxicated. And I knocked out my bottom tooth. I have a fake tooth on my bottom row of teeth. And I have a scar on my upper lip that I won't forget about. And it was all due to, you know, being young and dumb. And high. High, yeah. Wow. And so, um, you know, this lasted throughout high school like i said i um i ended up graduating from a private high school ended up going to fsu in tallahassee for college and i had a group of friends that were in my high school that i went up there with so of course these same friends that introduced me to weed started introducing me to other things while i was in college Uh, i had joined a fraternity and drinking was huge um we would drink a lot until the point where we'd pass out or not remember the rest of the night. Um, And little by little, I started smoking, drinking, and then eventually I got introduced to pills. What Um, kind of pills? First, it was Xanax. And, of course, they're both bad drugs. Remind me, Xanax is a painkiller? It's an anti-anxiety medication. It's a benzodiazepine. Okay. And... This drug alone is bad, but to mix it with alcohol, it just has a horrible multiplier effect. And there was one night where I was drinking too much. I had consumed Xanax, and I have a scar on the side of my forehead from falling and hitting the sink as I I started panicking. And the next thing I know, I woke up in a pool of blood, my own blood, and I was on my bathroom floor. And this was a scary point in my life. I knew that, you know, what I was doing was to an excess, but didn't stop me. Um, Pretty soon after that, I got introduced to Oxycontin and painkillers. I started with Vicodin. Uh, 
and slowly made my way up to Oxycontin. And in the beginning, I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really know how bad these pills were. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just took them to alleviate certain symptoms as prescribed by a doctor. And my friends had them on demand. So I started buying them from them. So let me just stop you for a second. So you were doing marijuana and drinking and then Xanax wasn't prescribed though, right? No, Xanax okay. wasn't. But Oxycontin was prescribed? No, the Oxys weren't either. I had gotten prescribed Vicodin. Oh, okay. For okay. Uh, injuries. I had also, I had, I failed to mention this, but when I was pole vaulting, I had broken my ankles twice. Wow. And that Are you was high when high you did school. that? Uh, Just curious. You know, actually, yeah, I think one time I was, the other time I wasn't. But the point is, is that I, I had gotten prescribed Vicodin while I was in high school from a doctor. And, you know, obviously it was to be taken as prescribed, which I took it as prescribed. But I had felt the euphoric feeling of, you know, what a painkiller does and what an opiate does. Right. So that was in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, I remembered that. I remembered the feeling that I used to get from painkillers. And after my injury, I was like, well, what do I need? I need a painkiller. Even though I probably could have tolerated the pain, you know, I asked for prescription painkillers. And I got it from the doctor. And as soon as my script ran out, I started buying it from friends. And then one day, someone introduced me to Oxycontin. And this was back in, uh, I'd say, 2005, 2005, 2006. Mm Mm-hmm. And at this time, there was a lot of pain clinics in Florida. Right. The pill mills. They had the pill mills around. Yeah. Yeah. So people were getting these things relatively cheap and dispersing it to make money. And I had fallen into that black hole that everyone had, you know, been accustomed to from doctors and these pill mills. And little by little, I started getting addicted to painkillers. I started abusing Oxycontin. First, I started snorting it. And then eventually, I had moved on to IV. And I had started injecting drugs. This was after I had dropped out of college. Oh, okay. So I was going to say, what happened to your grades? Because you said you were a really good student. Right. By this time, my parents had noticed that, um, you know, my grades were slipping. And for about two semesters, the last two semesters, I didn't even attend classes. I just pretty much partied and did drugs and forgot about school. Wow. Forgot about my athletic ability. I had gotten a scholarship to FSU for pole vaulting. I lost that. I had a a positive drug test, so they they took away my scholarship. When my parents found that out, I told them it was just because of marijuana. I lied to them. And they were kind of okay with that because marijuana... At the time, you know, my parents didn't know. I mean, it it was interesting because... You know, I have people in my family who have had drug problems before, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like brushed under the rug, you know? Like, my father was like, "Ah, oh, well, he's just a kid, you know? My mom was furious, you know? But whatever happened between them, I'm not sure. But they came to the conclusion that I should just stay in school. And I had lied to them for two semesters, told them I was going to school, taking classes, when I really wasn't. I was just wasting their money, wasting my time, wasting their time, being unproductive, and getting high all day. So eventually, it caught up with me when um, I had the police kick down my door. I was selling marijuana at the time. 
So one day I'm at home. The police kick down my door. They find like two pounds of marijuana in my house. So me and my roommate are now in handcuffs and, you know, we're looking at each other like, what are we going to do? Right. And there's a zero tolerance in Tallahassee. It's the capital of Florida. There's a, in Leon County, if you get caught with any drugs, even a joint, it's a mandatory jail time. Wow. So I'm not really going to get into the details, but fortunately I got to walk away from the situation. I ended up coming back down to South Florida and Fort Lauderdale. And basically, I told my parents what was going on. They were really upset. Did they have any clue whatsoever? Did they... This is something we talk about a lot, is like, how do parents have any kind of an inkling of what's going on? Did they have any clue? Did they go, we wondered what was going on? Or Well, they shortly found out. I mean, I had given them a bunch of stories that didn't make sense, and it caught up with me. So I'd say about like a month or two in from when I came back home, you know, I had been smoking marijuana in my house, which I was accustomed to doing. Because you're still doing drugs. Right. Okay. So I had been smoking weed in the house. You know, my father had smelt it. He asked me what was going on. He tried having a one-on-one conversation with me about it. And it didn't seem to lead anywhere. I mean, it was kind of like, like I said, just kind of brushed under the rug, hush-hush. It's a big taboo in that culture. Right. You know, once another family member finds that out outside of your inter- intermediate family, then, you know, they kind of just shun you out. You know, you're kind of like an outcast at that point. Wow. So they kept it really hush hush. They didn't really talk about it with other family members. So they didn't really have anyone they could go to to really get advice. You know, exactly what Jason was saying. Nobody to go to to, you know, to talk to about it. Right. And, um, you know, after that, I think uh, it took about another year or two before they found out. Well, actually, I ended up going to uh, I ended up going to a uh, community college. I straightened out a little bit. I, uh, I, you know, continued to smoke weed and drink, you know, but I had cut out the pills. Okay. And I had gotten my associate's degree in biological sciences at Broward College. Okay. And transferred to Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. Okay. Had you done any detox? Had you been through any detox programs at this no, point? No, I had you never. On your own? I had never been to a detox at this point. Okay. Um, this is when I started using drugs even heavier. I started getting into heroin. What? I started. You you cleaned up. I just want to try and get get the sequence here. So you cleaned up, and you're just doing marijuana and alcohol. What pushed you over the line again into heroin? I think it was the fact that I was living with my parents again. Ah. Oh. So I felt like. You know, I was back into square one when I was a high school kid. Right. And whatever happened during that time, I was like, well, you know what? I'm doing something wrong. I know I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I should cut some of this stuff out. Not realizing that all of it's bad and that it's just going to lead to this sick cycle over and over again. Right. And, you know, being 19, 20 years old at the time, I didn't really think about it too much. I said, okay, this is what my parents want. This is what I'm going to do. And if I have to lie about it to him, I'm going to lie about it. Okay. You know? So secretly, I would go and smoke and drink, and I would do it outside the house when possible. Sometimes I I did it in the house, but I just did it in a way that they would never be able to find out. So, you know, I I ended up moving on my own. 
my parents soon find out that you know I'm I'm starting to use drugs. They know something's wrong. They're calling me, and I'm not sounding right. I'm not picking up my phone. I'm calling maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks. When I was the type of person that would call them almost every day, mm-hmm. so they knew something was wrong, and they end up finding out. They end up giving me a random drug test, and they find out that I'm doing opiates again. Okay, so they send me into a halfway house in Boca. And while I'm in this halfway house, I, I seem to be doing well for like maybe four or five months. And then I just find out a bunch of other connections while I'm in there. You know, a bunch of other people that are getting high in the halfway house that are getting away with it. Wow. I want to stop you just for a second because I want to understand. We've talked about 12-step programs, 28-day programs. What's a halfway house? So a halfway house is uh, basically just a sober living apartment complex. Right. A what? So, Sober living. Right. Yeah, so okay. it's a it's a group of of people who will live in an apartment complex, and they've all kind of agreed together that right. that and somebody runs it. Right. Like, and there's one person that will usually he owns the place, and then another person underneath him that runs it. So okay. there's mandatory meetings. You have to have a sponsor. You have to have a job. Basically, they just make sure you're working like a nine to five job. You know, you're getting random UAs and urine analysis. Oh, okay. Drug tests. Random drug drug tests. Okay, good. And you're going to meetings. And they're either NA or AA meetings. Now, I don't want to bash NA or AA meetings. We never do. but But, you know, it just didn't happen. It didn't work for me. You know, there was something missing well, out of that well, program. Let me, just, let me just ask you a personal question. Is Christianity your religion? No, it's not. Well, that's, I think that's part of the problem. Sometimes it happens with some of these programs because they're Christian based. Right. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. And, you know, uh, I end up staying in this halfway house for a while. Long story short, I end up meeting a bunch of people that have connections and they know where the drugs are. They're doing it. They're getting away with it. And one day I say, you know what? I mean, if these guys are getting away with it, why can't I? Mm-hmm. You know. And of course, it just dove back into the same cycle. At this point, I started, you know, I, I had collected a good amount of money. I was a salesman uh, selling diamond blades on the phone, and I was pretty good at it. So I would make nice big commission checks every week, and I had saved up for a couple months. So I remember I got this one, I got probably the largest commission check I have ever gotten while I was working there, and they had given me a a pretty big promotion running the phone room. So I had pretty much got a cut from every salesman in the room. Wow. And once this happened, the first thing I did when I got that commission check was drive down to Miami and pick up a bunch of heroin. I ended up ODing that night for the first time. Wow. And... Waking up on my buddy's sofa with paramedics all around me, reviving me. And they had brought me into the ambulance and hit me with a substance called Narcan. And I'll never forget what that felt like because it just completely pulls you out of the state you're in and brings you back to life. And immediately you start withdrawing. Wow. And so I go into the hospital and my parents are there they're furious they don't know what to say they're just so upset at what's you know going on they thought i was going to be safe in this halfway house and i wasn't you know they thought that you know they were putting me in a good place they thought they were doing what was right right and 
you know, how, I mean, how old were you now? I would say I was about 22 years old at the time. Okay. This is the sick part is once I got out of that hospital, I went to find the heroin that had just almost killed me. And I had gotten high immediately right when I got out of the hospital just to forget about everything that was going on. Just to, you know, I mean, there's no way to justify this, you know, but it's, it's what happened. Right. You know, that's what was going through my mind at the time. It's addiction. Yeah. That's what it does. It really is. It's just a sick circle. I had met a girl while I was in this halfway house. I had moved out against my parents' wishes. Uh, I had continued to work with that job. And now I'm living with this poor girl who's paying my rent, who's bringing home groceries, who's working, who doesn't do drugs, and who secretly doesn't know that I'm a drug addict. After living with her for about six months, she finally walks in on me one day while I was getting high and flips out. Mm -hmm. And she had known my parents. She called my parents. She told them what was going on. Immediately, my parents had come. They grabbed me out of the house. I got all my stuff. And they said, enough is enough. And this was the first time that I was introduced to Narconon. I had, at the age of 23 years old, I had went to uh, Narconon in Oklahoma, Arrowhead. Okay. And I I had no clue what I was in for. (laughs) Um, I got there. um, They told me it was a drug-free withdrawal, which I was not happy about. I had been in a, actually, you know, I had been in a uh, a detox facility. Let me rewind real quick. Uh, I went to a detox facility after, about three days after I went to, because the halfway house had found out that I had overdosed. And I went to, they, it was a mandatory. So I had, um, I had gone to a, a detox center to go through withdrawal and to be weaned off of heroin. Because this was after you OD'd, right? This was right after I OD'd, right. And uh, I had spent about a week there. They had given me Sebutex or Suboxone or whatever it was at the time. It was just a basically just a, a crutch to uh, to alleviate symptoms, but you know, still you're you're not really fixing the problem. You're substituting one drug for another. Exactly, it, it doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah. And eventually, I got out of there. And I guess while I was in there, my parents had formulated this plan for me to go to a Narconon in Oklahoma called oh. Arrowhead. Okay. So as soon as I got out of the detox, they already Can I had... just stop you. How did they find out about Narconon? I, yeah. I believe that they they researched it online. Okay, fair enough. And then I think that's how they found out. I'm not 100 percent sure yeah. how they found out. I'm about just curious. It. Um, but at this point I didn't really care where they were going to send me. I just knew I needed help and I knew that this was, you know, not something normal people do. Right. When I first got there, I was a little skeptical. I, uh, you know, had to go through a withdrawal process where they're giving you assists and locationals. And I didn't understand why these things were being done. And they, those just help you. My understanding is that those just kind of help you when you're going through withdrawal to get your attention off of what's happening with your body, which is horrendous, right. and onto the environment in an attempt to keep you somewhat sane while you're going through yeah. this. Is that, is, that a, is that a good way to put it? Yeah, yeah. Instead okay. of being introverted, you know, you become a little more extroverted. You know, instead of looking inward, you're looking outward. Right. So you're kind of bringing your attention to other things besides what's going on with you and your head and your body, which is a good, it's a great technique. It works. After that, the withdrawal process, I had gone through sauna, 
And I had seen amazing changes while I was in sauna. Um, my taste of scent, my taste of smell, or my, sense my, of smell, my sense of smell, <laughs> my sense of taste, everything came back, you know, even colors got brighter, I, I had gotten a lot more energy, I had gotten back into athletics, um, you know, I had started running more and working out and getting my body back into shape. And I had started feeling really good. And I had gone through you know, after that, I had gone through uh, several books. One was like on how to learn. One was on you know conditions in life. All these things, and then finally objectives. And going through objectives was was interesting. I I think I had spent two weeks on one objective, which kind of drove me crazy. <laughs> but you know, it, it it helped me out in the long run. Um, I was able to confront situations in my life. I was able to share my emotions with people that, you know, were good people that I thought were social people. Um, you know, people that would be accepting towards my feelings and right. what was going on. And I really got to understand why I went down certain routes, especially when I started writing about my overts and withholds. I, I had learned that there was a pattern that I had fallen into way before I even did drugs right over it's being transgressions or sins or things that we wish we hadn't done right and i had noticed that my almost my whole life i i never really told my mother or father how i felt you know i was never able to confront them and tell them what i want instead i would kind of just you know let them pick you know what i should be doing right and unfortunately, you know, I, 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 even though I learned this and realized this, unfortunately, somewhere along the road, I, I forgot this. <laughs> but I had stayed clean for about seven years after that, after okay. I finished the program. When and, was it you did the program the first time? Uh, from the age of 23 for, I'd say about six months. I'd say 23, 24 years old. Okay. And How old are you now? I'm 31. Okay, cool. After I finished the program, I felt great. I was doing great. I, I ended up coming back to Fort Lauderdale. I finished my bachelor's degree in biological sciences at FAU. I took my MCATs. I got accepted into uh, St. George's University Medical School. Uh, so I went to Grenada. I lived there for a while. And this is all, this is like seven years later, six years later almost. And then, you know, my father was a doctor. Mm hmm. You know, my mother was an engineer, and so really it was always be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. So we get back to this part where both my mother and father wanted me to become a doctor at this point. Mm -hmm. And my father had gotten really sick. He, he got diagnosed with a brain tumor. I just wanted to put a smile on his face and just do what he wanted me to do. Right. You know, I just wanted to become a doctor and show him that I could do it. So I ended up going to medical school. You know, I was studying really hard. It was tough. You know, I pretty much studied 24-7. And for two years, I stayed in Grenada with, like, minor visits to the house. You know, I'd come back to Fort Lauderdale for maybe, like, a week or two just to visit my dad and my mom. And they would come up there, too, every once in a while when I had free times, when there wasn't exams. When I would come home, you know, basically I would just spend time with my dad. I'd take care of him. He had a, a surgery 
done while I was away where he they they excised the tumor out of his brain and he had gone through radiation and chemotherapy and before I left to medical school he didn't want this done I guess my mom and him had discussions and he ended up getting it done I think from what I understand is that he didn't want it done he's a, he's a doctor so he knew what would happen right if he went through this process and it was a tough decision for him to make you know I guess my mom might have swayed his opinion. I don't know. Whatever it was, it's it's done. It happened. He ended up getting a tumor taken out of this area of the brain called Brokar's area where it's responsible for speech. And so he couldn't talk to me anymore. And that just broke my heart. I couldn't, I couldn't say, I couldn't, I mean, I could say whatever I wanted and he understood it, but he couldn't respond. So there were a lot of things that I wish I would have, you know, talked to my dad about and spent more time with him to understand certain things that he had maybe gone through in life. Growing up, I just never appreciated that. I did I wasn't I wasn't the type of kid that actually sat down with his father and talked about all these things that, you know, a son should talk to his father about. Right. At least I felt like that. Well, it sounds like it wasn't that wasn't the culture to right. do to do that. It so. was just yeah, and, and you know, it sucks that it it it, you know, took up to that point for me to realize it but you know I found myself spending a lot more time with my dad now and just talking to him right and keeping him awake because he was getting really tired from all the chemotherapy medications I held a lot of resentment towards my mom I never told her that mm. but I was really upset because I felt like it wasn't the decision he wanted to make it but I never told her this you know I was never able to confront my mom about this and tell her how I felt uh, I would never cry in front of him. I wouldn't cry in front of her. I would pretty much just go to my room and cry by myself. I wouldn't share my emotions with anyone. So this comes back to the pattern that I was mentioning before I came to Narconon. I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, confront situations. I didn't share my emotions with people I should have shared them with. I didn't tell people what was going on. Right. Instead, I just isolated myself and held it in, and. It ended up backfiring again seven years later after I completed the program. So going through medical school, I'm doing well. All of a sudden, you know, I come back home and my father's really sick at this point. You know, I had just finished the two years of basic sciences in medical school. I come home and, 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 and I know it's time. Like, he's just not doing well. Right. So basically we had an in-home. It was like an in-home hospice. We had a nurse there that was on there 24-7 and a doctor that would come and visit every day. And it got to the point where, you know, he just chose to have a physician-assisted suicide. Wow. Because he didn't want to go through it anymore. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was really tough. Um, he died um, July 7, 2014. And I was there that day. I was holding his hand. I... I stayed with him until he took his last breath. Mm -hmm. It was very tough. But I said everything I wanted to say to him. Right. You know, I told him that I was sorry for the things I've done. I told him that, you know, I'm going to be successful and that don't worry about me. I'm going to make him proud. I said all these things. And, you know, my mom was there too. Um, I don't think I mentioned this, but I have a younger brother. You mentioned you have a brother. I just didn't know if he was older or younger. Yeah, I have a younger brother. and um, How much younger? He's three years younger than I am. 
and uh, you know, it's it's I, I'm kind of adding this in, but it's okay. You know, throughout my life, I had it. You know, with my younger brother, we would always we would do drugs together. Mm-hmm. You know, he would get clean, I would not be clean. You know, mm-hmm. you know when did, I would get clean, you, he did, would he did you would introduce be using him drugs. To drugs. I did, you, I okay. did. I introduced him to weed okay. at a young age, and um, this created a huge problem because it was like we would kind of play off each other uh, in our lives. Like if I didn't have any drugs, he had them, right? You know, and we would both kind of lie to our parents and cover for each other, and it was just a really bad mess and bad situation for both my parents. Right. So at this point in my life, you know, I'm clean. I'm not doing anything wrong. And as soon as my father passes away, I, you know, catch my brother doing drugs in the bathroom. And he's using IV heroin at this time. So instead of being the bigger brother and keeping my ethics and morals in and saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong, I give in. Just distraught from everything that's going on and just give in to, you know not caring about anything else besides alleviating the pain that I had. And so I started getting high again and didn't tell anyone just pretty much threw everything away at that point. Um, my mom was all by herself. I should have been consoling her and spending time with her instead. You know, I, I, I was selfishly just, you know, getting high to, forget about what really happened right i mean i had just lost my father and i just wasn't able to deal with it which is not an excuse to do drugs that's just like the last thing you would want to do at that point um but i just didn't know i didn't i didn't know how to deal with it i didn't i didn't think about it i understand Um, so now me and my little brother are doing drugs together it's becoming real bad we start doing drugs and I drop out of medical school. I say, forget about it. I never wanted to do this in the first place. I was just doing it for my father. I start making up all these excuses not to go back to medical school. And I come back home and start working for the family business. At this point, my mom had stopped working as an engineer and had started running several doctor's offices. Uh, She ran four different practices that my father had left behind. And so I had gotten... Uh, a job under her doing IT management for the offices. This was just like a hand-me-down. Like, I didn't have to work for it, you know? Right. It was just given to me. So I didn't really earn anything. Uh, So, of course, I started getting high at work, you know, and things started going wrong at work. You know, my mom had shortly, you know, noticed these things and one day had caught me with drugs in the house. And she was furious. She was very upset. She didn't know what to do. I had told her that I was going to go to a detox. So I had tried the whole detox thing again. Right. I had told her that I was going to go to AA and NA meetings. I started doing that and then skipping out every other day from meetings, lying to her, telling her I was going, filling out these sheets with my own signature just to to lie to her that I was actually attending these meetings. You know, long story short, I, I kept using and eventually she she was like, listen, you know what? This is not working at all. You were able to stay clean for about seven years when you went to Narconon. How about you just go back there okay, and do this? And I was willing to do that. I said, you know what? You're right. This is like, this is crazy that I'm in the same spot that I was in seven years ago. 
So I end up coming to Suncoast Narconon in Clearwater. Narconon, Suncoast. <laughs> right. And I'm in really bad shape at this point. Uh, I had gotten, I had actually got a needle stuck in my arm a month before coming to the Narconon Suncoast. And it was in there for a month. Like it went all the way under or something? Like it was under my skin. Oh my it God. was in my arm. And I had gone to a hospital. Oh, my God. And they said they couldn't find it. They couldn't do anything about it. So I get to Narconon and I'm going through the drug-free withdrawal, getting assists and locationals. And about 10 days in, my arm starts to get infected. Ah, uh, the needle is working its way out. Right. So, of course, I, I go to the hospital. They have to do surgery. Whatever. Long story short, I come back <laughs> to Oregon on Sun Coast, go back through withdrawal because of the drugs they had to administer at the hospital. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And then I'm waiting. You know, I'm waiting to get these stitches out. I go through the sauna program. Uh, you know, when I first got to Oregon, I didn't talk to anyone. I was honestly the probably the, the last guy you would ever want to talk to. I was just very mean. I didn't want to. I didn't want anyone touching me. I didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, my sense of humor was completely gone. And then, I don't know, I think I think about a week into sauna, like, everything changed. Like, the, the, the sauna IC came up to me one day, and he was just like, man, I did not know that this was the type of person you were going to be. He's like, I honestly thought you were just going to leave as soon as you got into this part of the program. And he was just astonished at, like, the person I really was. Wow. Or the person I was becoming. So IC, just for everybody listening, means in charge. So that's the person in charge of the detox part, the sauna part. Okay. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, the sauna IC had come up to me one day and he was just like, man, I can't believe that this is the type of person that you're, you're, you're starting to actually show who you are. You know, he noticed that I had started feeling better. I had started working out again. I was really upset, like, the whole time I was using drugs that I, I didn't work out. right. And yeah, because you're a physically fit guy. You guys can't see him, but you're physically fit. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. And so he noticed like I was working out every morning. I'd wake up early. I'd get it. You know, I'd get my workout in the morning and then start sauna. And um, I think I spent about 21, 22 days in sauna until I had finished. After that, I had gone through objectives and, um, you know, through objectives, I had had a few realizations that I could remember that were pretty significant. And uh, I'd like to draw one analogy um, for parents who um, don't know what's going on and don't understand what's going on with people in their lives that use drugs. I like to use the analogy that it's like someone who is trapped inside of a forest and you're trying to tell them how to get out. And that person will never be able to figure out how to get out of that forest with someone's directions. They have to figure it out because you don't know where they are in there. There's a bunch of trees and they're going to have to figure out on their own where the path is that they have to follow to get out of there. Wow. So you can never tell someone in active addiction how to get out of addiction. That's just not how it works. They have to figure it out for themselves. Wow. That's a, yeah. That's a heavy-duty analogy, but it makes sense. Yeah, and that's like really the hardest thing is that all you can really do is just become aware of you know signs that that the person might be going through, and you know where they would ultimately need help. But uh, it's it's kind of like a catch twenty-two, you know, like you can't 
you wouldn't really know until you've gone through it. Right. And even if you have gone through it, everyone's different. Right. So it's like you really, the person has to figure it out on his own. And that's what I love about the Narcanon program is that no one's telling you what your problem is. No one's telling you where you went wrong. Right. You're going to figure it out. They're going to help you figure that out. Right. You know? And that's the best thing because what do people pay for psychiatrists, psychologists, and they expect the answers are just going to be given to them. And they pretty much are. But it's like, how are you going to accept someone telling you what's how If you don't believe that and you don't figure it out, how are you going to accept someone telling you that, this is what your problem is, and this is how you should fix it. No, it's just wrong. It's it just wrong. Yeah, and it doesn't It doesn't work, you know? And you made a very good point with the analogy that you drew, and this is one thing that we try, we talked a lot about last week, actually, which was, unless you, unless you work at Narconon, and you have actually employed these technologies to get somebody off of drugs, you're not an expert in it. And so... Your analogy of trying to tell somebody how to get out of the forest, you don't know. It's like Narconon has a very specific technology, which when it's applied, will get a very specific result. And parents don't know that. Ministers don't know that. Rabbis don't know it. Priests don't know it. You don't know that. Okay? And so that's why we keep saying, go to narcononsuncoast.org or call 877-339-3324. Because you can get help from Narcanon. That's why they're there. So you're going to now help people get through the detox program, the oh, sauna yeah. detox. Definitely. I'm so excited about that. And are, you, are you ready to start or are you still doing some training? No, I'm ready to start. But the, but the sauna I see that's currently there has to be trained for his next post. So oh, until okay. they train him, I'm pretty much just going to stay with him. So me and him are running the sauna portion of the program right now together, which is great. He's my roommate. We have fun together. It works out great. We work great together. That's awesome. And you're going to stay here in, in Clearwater at Narcan on Suncoast, right? Yeah, I'm going to stay here. Okay, I'm excited. Of course, you may get to go to Baton Rouge sometimes. You guys go back and forth sometimes, right? <laughs> I haven't seen that uh, location yet, but <laughs> I look forward to exploring. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you telling your story. Is there anything else you want to share with us? Well, I, I mean, I just want to get back to the point where I... Um, you know, I, I, and I, you know, I had this real, I realized this when I was younger, but, you know, I don't know where along the lines I forgot it. Really, it's, my problem was not being able to confront situations that had arose in my life. Uh, I had hid my emotions from all my friends and family instead of talking about things and letting them help me out with my feelings and how I felt. And I, and I, and at one point I just became really unproductive and didn't contribute anything to myself or society in general, which is a huge thing. Yeah. Um, you know, once someone starts stops doing these things, then you know it kind of just leads down, you know, a really dark road. And yeah, you might not pick up right then and there and start using drugs, but eventually something will happen. You can go so, in that direction for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for I having me. I really, it. really appreciate it. I'm just going to bring Jason back on. We'll wrap this up. Sure. Sounds good. Well, that was awesome, Jason. Thank you for bringing Aiden. What a story. Exactly. Now, you said you went down there. What did What did you do when you went? You said you went down to Fort Lauderdale to kind of bring him back. What did What did you guys need to do? 
much of anything? I had to help him pack. Oh, okay. <laughs> we got there at, me and another staff member got there at like 10.30 at night. And we went to the house. And not only was, I thought this was going to be like a mom and a son, pack the son up, get him out. There's like ants there and everyone's oh. like hanging out. And it was like this like, I'm like going meeting all these people. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> And he, I haven't seen him. I was there for 45 minutes before I even saw him. So he was back in his room all like doing whatever he was doing. And so we sit down with his mom. We go over, you know, some of the paperwork that you do on the intakes. And right. um, all of a sudden he just comes like traipsing out of his room. Like, who are you guys? I was like, oh, my God. And so <laughs> and so I was like, hey, man, do you want me to help you pack? And he's like, that'd be great. I, he just watched me pack all the stuff. He just ended up watching me pack all the okay, stuff. Good. And I think... We, you weren't intervening. You were facilitating. I was like, let's go. Let's <laughs> just throw everything in a bag and let's go. And uh, we ended up we ended up finally leaving Fort Lauderdale at like midnight. Uh-huh. And then we had a five and a half hour drive ahead of us. Oh, okay. Um, he, we ended up getting an Arcanon about five in the morning. Got his intake done. Put him to bed and the rest is history. Okay, and good. so he's doing great now. Yeah, I'm really can tell. happy to have him on his staff. Yeah, he's got a really impressive story. I think it's a, I think it's a great story, and I, yeah, I think, and I hope it'll resonate with people. That's you the know? idea. We've talked about the fact Narcanon seventy five percent success rate. He was a success story. Ran into something that he wasn't capable of dealing with, so he came back, and now he's part of the seventy five percent again, and he's going to help others. And I think that's a great great story absolutely and so until next week exactly i think we should talk about marijuana next week oh i have things that i have things i want to talk about we just you, we have you to. keep bringing me people so we're doing this instead well, but we're going to talk about marijuana i'll give a quick teaser yeah i keep bringing people here and talking to people who all started on drugs with right. the first drug being marijuana right and so there's a there's a running theme here it needs, to get, it needs to get looked at, and I think we should dedicate next week to really like kind of diving into this. I think so, too, and you also did a blog about how to get people off or how to get people to stop, so we'll talk about that, too. All right. Well, Have I'll a good you week. Next, you, too. I'll see you next week. Thank you. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 